Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is just beginning to recruit trail ambassadors on the northern Oregon coast to help people engage with their public lands. We'll tell you how to get involved just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages Oregonians to come out and experience the changing seasons, but also be well prepared for whatever winter brings, and most importantly, leave no trace. All right, in today's episode, we're traveling to a rugged, beautiful, and solitude-filled place. So get ready to hunt for Bigfoot because we are headed to the Calameopsis Wilderness. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, we're traveling to one of the wildest places in the United States. The Calameopsis Wilderness includes 180,000 acres of exceptionally remote country in the Klamath Siskiyou Mountains of Southwest Oregon, just outside Grants Pass. It's a place of wild river canyons, rare wildflowers, alpine vistas that stretch all the way to the ocean, and the most pristine swimming holes in Oregon. Truly, the water is so clear, it's like swimming in liquid glass. But this is also an area that's been burned by some of Oregon's largest wildfires, not just once or twice, but three times since 2002. In the aftermath of those fires, many of the wilderness backcountry trails were on the verge of disappearing below thousands of downed trees and brush before my guest today stepped in and quite literally saved the trails of the Calameopsis. In this episode, I'm joined by Gabe Howe, Executive Director of the Ashland-based Siskiyou Mountain Club. We'll talk about how he saved the backcountry trails of Southwest Oregon, along with 10 of our favorite routes into the utterly wild Calameopsis. Gabe, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Zach. All right. So in this podcast, Gabe and I will break down the best hikes, the best backpacking routes in and around the Calameopsis, along with talking about its geology, its history, the megafires that have really marked it. But I want to start here. Gabe, I think it's fair to say the Siskiyou Mountain Club was born in the Calameopsis. And I know you've told this story a million times to a million different journalists, but do you mind telling me again how you and your wife, Jill, first came there and how that led to the creation of the club? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we became real intrigued with the area um, in 2005. We were caretakers at a Bureau of Land Management site on the Rogue River called the Rogue River Ranch. And so we spent the summer there and, you know, ended up exploring a lot of maps and stuff that, that were in the um, caretaker's home and uh, just got really intrigued by the geography looking at a map of the Calmeopsis Wilderness now, that summer, we didn't have time to go explore it, but the next summer, 2006, we set out and, and you know, we, we did a lot of research. Um, we got our own maps. We did as much research as we could, and, and we started to go out and, and try to hike these trails and right away just found really, really poor conditions 
um, from the get go, you know, starting at the trailheads, but um, had a really, you, you know, amazing time and um, became really inspired by the area's depth and, how, you know, how big it is and how wild it was. And I became especially fascinated by the Chetco River because I'd seen it in Brookings where it comes out at the Pacific, but I could see that it was like enveloped by the Calmeopsis mountains and I really wanted to see it. So we started trying these hikes to get into the Chetco, but we just ran into these really bad trail conditions. So when I tell you bad trail conditions, you know, we're not talking about a couple logs in a mile. We're talking about conditions where you literally have five to 10,000 trees down in a single mile. Um, and they, they form stacks and you have to crawl under and over and through them and take your pack off and scoot your pack um, along the trail as you're crawling through. And this is what we encountered, but we did get to the Chetco River a couple years later. So by 2008, we, we found this kind of back door into the Chetco River. And we said, you know, this is, this is a really, really special place. And on a hike out um, of the Chetco, we were on the Emily Cabin Trail. And we started just doing what we could to improve the trail. So we started picking up logs that had broken pitching them off of the trail and moving rocks. And, you know, we did this for about an hour and we looked back and, you know, we could see that we'd, we'd made a real difference, you know, and in about 45 minutes or an hour day, the, the day was actually closing in on us and we had to get back to the trailhead. We, we could see that this work was manageable. And so, you know, we kept going in and we kept exploring and we identified a single route that goes from one side of the wilderness to the other, from Babyfoot Lake to Vulcan Lake. And we said, you know, we got to clear this route. We, we, we've, we've got to, we've got to open this up. And we'd seen most of it except for about three or four miles of it in the middle, which ended up being the worst sections of, of the route that we identified. And in 2010, we started getting friends and family and anyone we could together. And, and we started going out and running these week-long volunteer trips on this route that maybe we can talk about a little bit later. And that was it. I mean, that, that was 2010, June 2010. We started running those trips and we had success and, and we just moved forward from there. Yeah, and I know that you guys have grown a lot over the years beyond just the Calmeopsis into a whole bunch of other different wilderness areas. So where, where's the group now kind of, you know, what's in your portfolio and what are you looking for, especially heading into the upcoming season? Cause I know you use a lot of volunteers. Sure. We kind of just scaled what we did in the Calmeopsis, you know, and, and we started to go into other areas in the region and identify similar projects. So we started to look at trails that were on the map, but were impassable. We never had any interest in, in, in developing new trails. We were always looking back in history to find trails that were already recognized, but you know, you, you, you couldn't pass. And so at this point, you know, we, we've just been taking that formula everywhere um, where we work. So at this point we work in seven or eight different federal wilderness areas we work across uh, four or five national forests in, in Southwest Oregon, and Northwest California. 
I've got a few permanent staff members and then we have big seasonal programs where, you know, we, we bring in interns and volunteers to accomplish this work. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I just wanted to touch on quickly, sir, before we get going is, can you kind of talk about why your group is so important down there? You know, why, why are you guys doing this work and, and why have you been so instrumental in this? That's a really good question. I think that when we started doing this work, you know, when Jill, my wife, and I started exploring this area and getting to know Southwest Oregon better, we just saw a huge gap. There was no one else doing the work. There was no other group. The agency, you know, had kind of been downsized and, you know, these backcountry remote areas fall off the radar for, you know, basically economic reasons, you know, that they had to focus the forest service, the BLM, they needed to focus on those trails and those areas that get the most use. And so these places kind of got put into the back burner, I think. And we didn't see anybody else stepping up to do the work. And honestly, that was actually really, um, you know, it, it was a little irritating actually, because we, we just sensed all this apathy and, and it seemed like nobody thought that you could do, you could get these projects done. Like they thought it wasn't realistic, but we just found that through hard work and focusing on the mission and not getting distracted that you could, you know, that you could mobilize people and you could go in there with these crosscut saws and these hand tools and you could get stuff done and you could open up these routes. And who are the, you know, when you talk about your wilderness corps, uh, who are those? Who, who are they? Like who's coming in for the summer and kind of what are they doing? You know, what's, what's the, what's a day like for them out there? Yeah. So uh, we hire interns. So we hire interns for our wilderness conservation corps. People, you know, we're hiring right now. We need people this year. We need people every year. So that's a little shameless plug um, to get onto our website and, and apply. But they, they come on and they go out and work eight day um, hitches. So they pack in their food. They pack in their supplies. They hike into a project site. They spend long days getting this work done. And then they have four days off and they do that throughout the summer interns are paid a educational stipend. You know, they make about $1,200 a month and they get a whole lot of enrichment with that too. So other activities, meeting with land managers, getting other credentials, you know, gearing up for careers in the outdoors essentially. And then what we've built is a system where, you know, if, if interns really like this work, we invite them to come back and join our staff team. And they come in as like assistant crew leaders and crew leaders. So we've built this pipeline of, you know, people who start as an intern who, you know, you're going to serve two months or more. You're going to work eight on, four off doing the hard labor that it takes to open these backcountry trails. And if you like the work, we're going to offer you a, a position as a, you know, assistant crew leader. And if things go well, you know, there's a pipeline to, to become, you know, a permanent employee for the organization. And so that is our wilderness core. It is a blend of staff and interns who do the heavy lifts to, to get these projects done. Yeah. You know, I've always thought like, you know, if you had a teenager who, you know, was 
feeling a little aimless or, you know, a college student who wasn't sure what they wanted to do, but like the outdoors, like a summer with you guys would be a, a great way to kind of, you know, kick them into shape a little bit and, and learn how to, how to work hard instead of, you know, playing video games or something. Yeah. I, I think that anyone who's in pursuit of a personal challenge, who, who wants to see what they're made of and, and really push themselves to a higher level, it, this program can be a great fit for someone looking for that. And uh, people have, they do, they have very transformative types of experiences where, you know, they, they go through great change over, over the course of a term on our wilderness core. Right on. Well, all right, well, we're going to talk about the club more kind of as we continue, but we're going to jump into the area that Gabe is actually talking about, highlight some of the best places, the best hikes, the best backpacking routes to travel. In Explore Oregon podcast fashion, Gabe and I are going to pick five of our favorite spots out there and talk about what makes them unique. But to start, Gabe, what time of year, if you wanted to visit this area, what time of year would you recommend visiting to get the best out of an adventure? Like, what do the seasons bring? Most people are going to want to see the Calmeopsis in the spring. That's when it's still cool. Um, that's when the flowers are blooming. That's when, you know, you're, you're most likely to not have any smoke or nearby wildfires or extreme heat that we see in the summer. And so the, the spring is a really nice time to visit. You got to catch the window between when you can get up to the trailheads that are most, you know, they're around 4,000 feet. So after the snow melts, but before it gets so hot that, you know, you can fry an egg on, on the trail bed. I used to really love late summer and fall in the Calmeopsis. That's when the, the creeks and the rivers are low. So, you know, managing um, creek crossings and that sort of thing is really easy. Whereas in the spring, you can run into that. And you just have this nice, cool weather, you know, with the shorter days and everything. But what's happened is that... In the last, you know, three, four, five years, we've experienced closures and heavy smoke in that late summer, early fall season. And so it's not as viable of a time to visit as it used to be. But if you do catch yourself in an off year where there isn't smoke, where there isn't fire, there aren't closures, I would say go late summer. Yeah, no, th those are great recommendations. And I can certainly vouch for it. One thing I would encourage, you know, we have a lot of listeners from the Portland area, uh, from Salem and the Willamette Valley who are used to, you know, backpacking in the Cascades. Sure. And that season, the climate Siskiyous are pretty different. Like they're just a different range. They have a different climate. And uh, so what he's saying about getting up there in the spring, great advice. And the summer, um, I've backpacked out there at the peak of summer and it's really, really hot. It's hard to explain how hot it can get out there. But as far as uh, base camps and access points, I've always thought you can kind of split the Calameopsis into two halves. There's the Illinois Valley side uh, near towns like Grants Pass and Cave Junction, which have hotels and motels, places to supply and stuff like that. And then there's the Oregon Coast side that includes towns like Brookings, Gold Beach. The Valley side is close to where more people live and it's fun. But it's also fun to come in from the coast side. You actually pass the Oregon Redwoods on your way up there. Um, the last point I wanted to hit is that, you know, it's absolutely critical in this area to have good maps before any trip into the Calmeopsis. I strongly recommend a good GPS device as well. This area is not necessarily super user-friendly. People have gotten horrendously lost a few times. So... <laughs> 
Gabe, uh, <laughs> how would you recommend going about, you know, doing your planning and what to have when you're out on the trail in that respect? Well, this this April, May, we will be having um, we're we're going to issue a Count Meopsis Wilderness Map, which will be available, um, which is going to be the best resource for people who want to explore the Count Meopsis. But in the meantime, what I think people should do is use the U.S. Geological Survey seven and a half minute quadrangle maps to explore the area there is a real run you can't find the district maps anymore because of you know supply chain or i i don't know exactly why the real reason is but you can't get your hands on those gold beach district maps anymore you can't get your hands on the wild rivers maps anymore and those those usgs quads available from the usgs online are your best resource um for planning and, and that's all you've really got until we issue this Calmeopsis wilderness map this spring. Well, I'm looking forward to getting one of those maps because I've been lucky enough to hang on to my old Gold Beach, um, you know, district map. And yep. uh, it, I think it's a little out of date in, in places, too. So looking forward to that. Anything else we need to know uh, before we jump into talking about the best places to, to check out out there? You know, I would just say don't expect services or you know, knowing that you have a lot of folks coming from like, you know, visiting the Cascades, Mount Hood National Forest, Deschutes National Forest, where, you know, you probably have a little bit more development on the trail, meaning signs um, and that sort of thing. D don't expect that coming into the Calmeopsis. There's a lot of missing signage. Trailheads aren't always well marked. It is a very um, undeveloped area. So you need to prepare for that. You know, there's not going to be signs necessarily pointing you in the right direction or people, you know, you're not going to have, Oh, Hey, where's the trail go from here? You're not going to have those passer buyers giving you advice on, on where things are. You know, you're, you're just kind of on your own in the Calmeopsis. And with that, you know, I, I think there's, there's some setbacks to not having that development. It, it would be nice to get some more signage and that sort of thing. But the other thing is, is, is that makes it a very pristine place because so few people do visit. So really hold tight to those leave no trace principles, go brush up on those, um, be prepared, know how to manage your waste. And uh, in that same line of thought, this is not a good place for dogs. If you want to bring your dog somewhere, this, this isn't a good place for it. Uh, I, I have some horror stories that I could share about that, but I know that's become really popular, but at the end of the day, not really worth it here. All right, I'm going to get us rolling here, and we're going to go back and forth, uh, just picking and talking about some of our favorite places the way we like to do. And the first place that I'm going to pick is one of the most unique places in Oregon, and that is Vulcan Lake. It's located at the end of a notoriously rough road, about an hour or more from Brookings. So you get to Vulcan Lake from the coast side of the wilderness. The name always reminds me of Star Trek, of course. Mr. Spock was from the planet Vulcan. And in that respect, it's right on target because Vulcan Lake feels like a different planet. The lake is an emerald pool surrounded by a phantasmal basin of reddish-orange bedrock, you know, bizarre trees and plants. Everything about Vulcan Lake feels otherworldly. 
The hike down is pretty easy. It's less than three miles round trip, and it's a great place to just hang out, swim, maybe pitch a tent. It's also surrounded by other great hikes, including a climb up Vulcan Peak on the side of an old lookout tower, big views across the entire wilderness, and then there's other lakes like Little Vulcan, Lish, and Salamander Lake. Vulcan Lake is a great introduction to the geology of the Calneopsis. Basically, the rocks here originated deep in the ocean and were pushed up onto the land by tectonic plates, resulting in formations of serpentine and periodite, which I'm going to mispronounce and I don't really care. Um, <laughs> they are found, so these rocks are just found few other places on Earth. They create an environment that's really unique, uh, unique plants. Serpentine is very nutrient poor. There isn't a lot of soil. So the plants that live there have to come up with adaptations to survive, like the insect-eating Darlingtonia that gets their fill by trapping and ingesting bugs. The rivers and the lakes of the Calmeopsis are extremely clear because this type of rock doesn't have a ton of sediment or dirt that washes down into it. So you have the collection of some of the clearest rivers on Earth, like the Illinois, the Chetco, and the Smith. So that's kind of a quick overview of the geology. But Gabe, what did I leave out? What's your favorite thing about Vulcan Lake area or the geology that's out there? Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I love Vulcan Lake too. And and so just, just going to the lake itself and, and visiting is a, is, is a great experience. But I would point people towards the south of Vulcan Lake out on the Johnson Butte Trail 1110. You can hike that ridge out. It has a pretty moderate elevation profile for the first five or six miles. And the views that are to be had out there are just amazing. And it's just a really kind of prolific type of ridge top hike. And probably saying too much here, but the Calmeopsis lichiana bloom heading out the Vulcan, or excuse me, the Johnson Butte Trail 1110 if you catch it at the right time of the year, it is explosive. Um, and, and probably the best Leachiana sightings available, you, you know, for the hiker that doesn't want to hike days and days to, to see a little pink flower. Yeah, and Gabe is going to talk a little bit more about the relevance and the namesake of the Calameops in this, and that's that little wildflower just a little bit later. I think it's worth mentioning, again, how rough the road is to Vulcan Lake. Like, <laughs> this is, I mean, <laughs> even with a tough high-clearance rig, like, you know, a truck, I mean, it, that road will feel like it's going to shake it apart. Like, it feels like you're on a wooden roller coaster, just like all the potholes and ruts and stuff like that. I heard there's been issues with landslides out there, so... Probably worth calling, you know, Gabe and the Siskiyou Mountain Club ahead of time or the Forest Service before heading out just to make sure uh, the road is passable. So, Gabe, what's uh, what's your first pick? What are you going to get us rolling with? Well, let's um, let's head due west of Vulcan and let's talk about Babyfoot Lake a little bit. Really a, a, a very similar place to Vulcan, but the geology is, is different. Um, it has more granitics, and so it doesn't have that red... Um, orangish, you know, bedrock, peridotite, Martian look to it. But it is another north-facing cirque. So, you know, this is somewhere where in the last ice age, there there was a glacier and it, and it carved out this deep lake basin that maintains its level all throughout the year. And this is a place where I like to take my kids because, you know, it's, it's similar to Vulcan in that it's less than about a mile and a half to get in. 
and a great place to go visit in the summer when it's hot because you do you're, you're at about 4000 feet so you have a few thousand feet elevation on the valleys where it's you know hotter and the exposure because it's that north facing cirque you don't have as much sun as you would in other areas so it stays a little bit cooler and it's just it's just a great place to go play. There's logs that go out into the middle of it. You know, we'll take an inflatable stand-up paddleboard or other things that are fun for the kids, you know, little flotational devices and that sort of thing. And and they just have a blast there. And then, you know, if you get kind of if you get kind of um bored with Babyfoot Lake itself, there's a lot of trails around it. So you can walk about a five mile loop that combines the Babyfoot Lake Rim Trail and the Calmeopsis Rim Trail um, and the Babyfoot Lake Trail that, you know, you can see out across the wilderness. You're going to have lots of wildflowers in the spring and, you know, you're, you're, you're just going to have a, a little taste of the Calmeopsis by getting just outside of Babyfoot Lake and it's spring fed. So, you know, it, it, it mysteriously never really gets low even in the late summer. And it's just kind of this little oasis uh, on the east side of the Calmeopsis that just about anyone can get into. Yeah, I love the way you described it. And I've always loved Babyfoot because it's it's a perfect kind of entry-level experience to the Calmeopsis. It's a great place to go for a pretty easy day hike. And you and me were just up there pretty recently. And one thing that stuck out to me was when I lived down there, because I used to live in Southern Oregon and actually wrote a, a book about the area's hikes, when I first went there, I remember Babyfoot Lake looking very burned out, like all the trees were gone. It was kind of just really been nuked by some of the recent wildfires, but it looks much greener. It looks a lot healthier uh, nowadays. Maybe that's just my imagination, but um, it's a really pleasant little spot to go. And uh, just outside of Selma or Grants Pass, so it's doable if you're in the Grants Pass area for like a, a day trip or something like that. For our third and fourth picks, Gabe and I are going to team up to tackle what's probably the most iconic trail through the Calmeopsis, and that is the Illinois River Trail. It's named for one of the wildest rivers on the West Coast, and the trail is just a, it's a true gem running 30 miles from just outside Selma uh, to just outside Agnes and Gold Beach. You can definitely backpack the entire thing end to end with a shuttle, you know, from the valley to the coast side, and that's a, that's a bucket list trip. But what we're going to do is we're going to split it into two out and back halves because there's just a lot of options on both sides of it. So the side that I'm going to take is the east side of the trail. So that's going to be over on the valley side by Selma, south of Grants Pass. The road to get in here, once again, in classic Calmeopsis <laughs> tradition, is notoriously bad to reach. So I would definitely recommend having a high clearance vehicle. Uh, the first time I did it, I took a little Honda Civic down to the trailhead because I was young and dumb and didn't know what I was doing. I came really close to getting stuck multiple times. So, you know, have the right rig to get all the way to the trailhead. You know, there's a bunch of different ways to do this side of the Illinois River Trail. You can do an easy hike along a really beautiful stretch. Um, you know, you start at the trailhead, you cross a cool bridge, and you just follow this trail above these deep river canyons. And uh, you could go to a place called York Creek that has a whole bunch of the rare plants we've talked about, the insect-eating Darlingtonia, the, the Calmeopsis leachiana. So that's that's an easy kind of out and back. It's about five miles. So that's like a good little taste of it. My favorite part is to do a little bit farther and go all the way to Pine Flat. And this is a, a grassy meadow 
right along the Illinois River with some great campsites, some great swimming spots. It's funny because it's called the Illinois River Trail, but for a lot of the time, you're nowhere near the, the river. You'll be way, way above the river. Um, so this is one place where you can, you can you know, interact with the Illinois River, which is a really beautiful stream a lot more. So hang out at Pine Flat. It's a good place to pitch a tent, maybe do some fishing or swimming in the summer. If you want to really punish yourself, you can do an extremely steep route called the Florence Way Trail. And that'll take you all the way up to Bald Mountain. And that way you can complete a 20-mile loop. It's beautiful, but really, really hard. It gains almost 4,000 feet total in this fireburn landscape. And uh, that trail, by the way, Florence Creek, not only horrendous on your legs, but it's also the site of a notorious historical moment that I'm going to talk about in a little bit later. But Gabe, I, that was kind of a lot. So did I forget anything about that east side of the trail? I know you guys spend a lot of time out there. Uh, what else? What else can I add to that? Uh, you 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 covered it pretty well, Zach. Um, you know, I would I would encourage people to get out that that quad map, get out that USGS topo map, and see what else is out there because I think they might find some other gems. All right, why don't you take us down the west side of the Illinois River Trail, Gabe? Yeah, so um, it's kind of funny because the the east side of the trail originates just outside of a little inholding called oak flat on trails and then you come out on the west side at another site called oak flat so just so that people don't get confused there's an oak flat east and there's an oak flat west there's about 30 miles of the illinois river trail between them and so coming in from oak flat west you know that's about four roughly four miles from the the small town of Agnes, Oregon, near where the Illinois runs into the Rogue. The The trail on that side is pretty, uh, it, it has a little bit more of an elevation profile than on the east side. And you get to some really cool spots though, Indigo Creek, Silver Creek, um, and then you have a steep clip up to Bald Mountain, which is kind of the center of the route. Again, unless you're willing to kind of get off the beaten path and and find your way down, um, you know, some kind of scrambles down to the river, there isn't a whole lot of river access. So most of the time you are up above the river looking down. But I think what um, the west side has a little bit more of is, you know, a look into the history. You have some sites over there, Franz Ranch, um, other places where there's actually still cabins and and other remnants of the past. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's a little bit more of a historical exploration going in from the West side, but, uh, and, and also it's been impacted um, by the Klondike fire after 2018. Expect less ideal conditions on the west side than you would on the east side so if one of your listeners were to come in from grants pass and start along the illinois river trail and say oh everything looks really good you know they'd get to about bald mountain and that's when the trail becomes a little bit more primitive and then around the silver creek and indigo creek area there's a little bit more brush um, and a small landslide and that sort of things. I don't think, you know, it's anything that would turn someone around who has, you know, some moderate experience hiking and backpacking, but the profile of the trail, it kind of 
the east side it starts out really developed and it kind of gets less and less developed as as you head west so i i'd say that the other thing to consider too is that the west side of the trail is you know for the first five six miles it's not in wilderness and so especially during hunting season you may have some interaction with um, motorized use on that side with with people on um two-wheeled motorcycles yeah yeah no I, I remember that i've I've run into them a few times friendly friendly group for the most part oh, yeah. um but yeah it's uh it's the thing that i remember the most about this side was the the bridges over yep. Yep. indigo and silver yep. like they're all they're like engineering marvels like you know these really cool bridges over these deep chasms where the creeks come down and the indigo and uh, and silver are remarkable creeks and so i think that the highlight for me was going in there and like hanging out and spending as much time around those creeks as i could and that was a big highlight as like a day hike for that side yeah no the the bridges are really remarkable um and they kind of they hearken us back to the times when the forest service had lots of resources and and you know took on these big sorts of engineering infrastructure types of projects to maintain access into our, our back country. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to detail the mega fires that have marked the Calameopsis, which include a few of the most famous blazes in state history. So stay with us. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At AFRC, we value protecting Oregon's forests and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. Well, you can't talk about the Calameopsis without talking about the modern history of not just wildfires, but megafires, meaning wildfires that grow over 100,000 acres. Few places in Oregon have ever seen one wildfire anywhere close to that size, but the Calameopsis has seen a whopping three megafires since 2002 and another one in 1987 that came just short. The names of all the fires are legend, silver, biscuit, Chetco Bar and Klondike. They all played a big role in Oregon's modern wildfire era. I've written about all of them at various times, but since we don't have a podcast that lasts three hours, I figured I'd just center on the granddaddy of them all, the Biscuit Fire. Although, as we'll see, it wasn't the original name of the fire, and it was only because an Oregon coast town of Florence complained about the bad PR that we remember it as Biscuit. So before we jump in, I do think it's important to recognize that the Calmeopsis is an area that burned all the time, historically, as often as every 10 to 20 years. The dry forest, combined with the notorious winds off the Pacific Ocean, called the Chetco Winds, just made it a place that naturally has a lot of fire. There's an old smoke jumper base outside Cave Junction that's now a fantastic museum that was always really busy over the years. They put out countless numbers of fires. So the biscuit started in a way that's going to sound really familiar to anybody who's been paying attention to wildfires here in Oregon lately. In 2001, there was a historic drought drying out the forest. 
The next summer, it was already a busy wildfire season across the West when dry lightning hit Southwest Oregon July 12th through the 15th, igniting hundreds of small fires. Something really similar happened in 2018, actually, and it had almost an identical result. So anyway, overwhelmed by all these fires and short staff because of the fires across the West, smoke jumpers couldn't respond to all those fires right away, and about five of them grew up and got pretty large in remote locations. One of those that ignited right near the Illinois River on Florence Creek. So remember that super difficult hike I talked about in our last segment? Yep, right there. Florence Fire, as it was originally called, grew rapidly in the remote country, throwing up big mushroom clouds of smoke thousands of feet high and putting up to 15,000 people on evacuation notice. The Florence Fire eventually merged with a smaller but still significant fire called the Sour Biscuit Fire. Now, normally it would retain the name of the larger fire, but the town of Florence actually complained that the name of the Florence Fire brought a major drop in tourism. So when they merged, it was renamed the Biscuit Fire. The fire became the largest in North America that year, prompting a visit from then-President George W. Bush and burning 500,000 acres. There's kind of a legendary story about how firefighters used a strategy called backburning, which is essentially setting fires outside the main fire to deprive it of fuel and stop it from making big runs. It's legendary because that way, that tactic is used all the time now. Uh, pretty much every summer in Oregon, they use backburning all the time now. And it was kind of pioneered. It wasn't originated, but it was kind of pioneered on this fire. Anyway, it worked in this case. And the fire only burned about 14 buildings and didn't take any lives. That's actually a pretty good outcome and a lot less impactful, you know, mortality-wise compared to the Labor Day fires. But by size, Biscuit was the second largest wildfire ever recorded in Oregon since 1900. The only fire larger was the 2013 Long Draw Fire, which was just a giant grass fire in Southeast Oregon and didn't have nearly the same impact. So Gabe, that was a pretty quick and dirty history of Biscuit, but what sticks out to you, either about the legacy of the fire or the aftermath now almost exactly 20 years ago? I mean, this is one podcast, so, you know, I mean, we could we could talk for a really long time about the Biscuit Fire, but I guess for me what stands out and this became kind of a, a theme throughout my career, you know, during the fire, there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of people on the ground. There's a lot of press. There's um, a lot of activity going on, but more or less, you know, once that fire's out, um, our attention goes to the next thing. And and I, I don't just mean, you know, the press, I, I also mean the the agencies as well once the fire's out we kind of we kind of forget about it but there's a whole process that happens after these fires especially when you're talking about trails that goes on for years and years and years and you know we're still managing some of the stewardship challenges that the biscuit fire left us now 20 years ago so I just think that the biscuit fire illustrates that so well. It would become a pattern that that I've seen, you know, going back to that origination story when my wife Jill Stokes and I started going out to the Calmiopsis. It was 4 years after the biscuit fire. Any priority as far as the biscuit fire went, you, you know, 
it didn't exist. People weren't thinking in 2006, when I went into the Calmeopsis for the first time, people were not thinking about the biscuit fire, but I was because I was encountering these trees that it had burned and then fallen on the trail. And so, you know, I, I think that the biscuit fire just shows us that we have to look at fire as being a longer process than just one season. When you have these big wildfires, you can't, you, you can't move forward um, without really taking into consideration the long-term impact that that fire is going to have, whether you're talking about trails, whether you're talking about ecology. The other thing I would say that stands out about the Biscuit Fire is, you know, I've seen a lot of wildfire in the wilderness areas of Southwest Oregon and Northwest California. And I've seen other really big fires, not quite as big, but, you know, I've, I've, I've experienced those landscapes and for whatever reason, whether it was that Chetco effect of, you know, the, that, that those late afternoon winds, whether it was the ecology, whether it was the, the history of fire suppression, you just saw a, a rate of, of tree mortality that I, I don't see in adjacent areas after wildfires. And so, you know, ecologically speaking, it was just a huge event and ended up being kind of this turn in the chapter ecologically for the, for the Calmeopsis and the surrounding areas. Whereas, you know, you used to have sort of this conifer coastal Oregon forest influence in this, in this different geology, you know, in the wake of the biscuit fire, you're seeing a total transition in the ecology towards a more chaparral type of uh, in, environment. So it was, it, it, it changed the area in its character. I, I think, in a in a way that I haven't seen in, in other areas to the same degree, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it actually makes perfect sense. We, um, in the wake of the Labor Day fires, we did uh, kind of a deep dive on whether we thought Oregon's forests would come back in the same way. And the consensus kind of was that in Northwest Oregon, which is just wetter and cooler, that there wasn't going to be so much, like even, even as climate change makes places hotter and drier, Northwest Oregon was still going to have you know, the, the same rain. So it wasn't there. They weren't so worried about forests growing back kind of in the same way that we remember. But on that same note, they did mention Southwest Oregon, which has, you know, really, really hot and dry conditions that they were seeing more of a transition that forests weren't coming back. And to the same way that they were before. And that definitely seems to have started with Biscuit. And I mean, Biscuit was just like a big moment in Oregon's history. Like, we just hadn't experienced a fire like that in a in a really long time. It got everybody's attention and it kind of ushered in the era of megafires. You know, they took a break for a few years, but it was followed up by, you know, the Chetco fire burned almost 200,000 acres in 2017 and almost burned down the town of Brookings. Um, so that was pretty scary. And then just another year later, the Klondike fire burned 175,000 acres. So it was just like megafire after megafire, like all kind of in this concentrated area yeah and i i I think it was just in this perfect storm where you know you you pointed out the smoke jumpers and i think they were really good at what they did but i think a hundred years of that that type of suppression led to a huge fuel buildup 
along with all those other factors you described, hot, dry conditions, heavy winds and everything that, uh, you know, it, it, it just led to this, this event that I, I, I haven't seen. And it's so nuanced because I, I look south to the Siskiyou Wilderness Area, which is just south of the, of the Oregon-California border. And topographically and ecologically, you know, very similar to the Kalamiopsis, but did not have that same regime of, of, of suppression uh, the way the Kalamiopsis did. And it has fared these large fires, Natchez, Slater, etc., a little bit better. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing more, we're not seeing the, the mortality in the canopy the way we, we did in the, in the biscuit fire. So just a, a really complex and nuanced sort of event that happened there. Well, yeah, and I, I'd really like the, what you mentioned about when I was working on a long story about the the Chetco Bar Fire. You know, the fire manager told me he was like, you know, look, like historically, what's the Calamiopsis now didn't look the way that a lot of people imagine it in their heads. Um, it had grown up like to a point like pre 1987 where it was like a dense rainforest. And I've looked at some of those pictures. It's really interesting. And it was really beautiful. Like we as humans love it like that. But historically, it was ne- <laughs> it never looked like that. And uh, so that was kind of an artificial uh, construct. And so what happened was probably going to happen no matter what. And it's it's really interesting that you pointed to those those pictures because you know, I've, I've done similar studies where I look back at archives and stuff. And Mm -hmm. there's some pictures of the Calamiopsis that were taken in the early 20th century. And particularly I'm thinking of some areas uh, on the East side around Whetstone Butte Canyon peak on the, on the Eastern rim. And those pictures from the early 20th century, it looks a lot more like it does now than it (laughs) did in like pictures from the eighties. Yeah. It was, it was that buildup. It was that buildup of fuel. Those, I see it all the time, man. I see it all the time. I mean, these tan oaks that we cut, these tan oaks should not be growing to three or four or five feet in diameter. They should be burning. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, part of that understory that's just always burning, but they were just, everything just grew up. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, there's just there's so much here. It's such an endlessly interesting topic. But all right. So we're going to take another quick break before we return and get back into the best hikes and backpacking routes. We'll head to the highest point in the Calmeopsis. We'll drop down to a place known simply as Magic Canyon. And then we'll talk about a pioneering female botanist who gave the Calmeopsis its name by discovering a tiny pink flower found nowhere else on Earth. So stay with us. The next message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Trail Keepers of Oregon are looking for trail ambassadors to help out on the North Coast for the 2022 season. Volunteers hang out at popular trailheads on the North Coast to engage with visitors about safety, ethical use of public lands, and leave-no-trace practices as well as sharing opportunities for visitors to engage with local communities. It's a way to give back to the trails we all love. All it takes to become an ambassador is taking a virtual training that can be done on your own time and will equip you to feel confident about talking to visitors as they start their recreation adventure. 
To get started, email Trailkeepers Engagement Manager Natalie Ferrero at natalie.ferrero at trailkeepersoforegon.org. So once again, and I'm going to spell it, it's N-A-T-A-L-I-E dot F-E-R-R-A-R-O at trailkeepersoforegon, which is all one word, dot org. All right, welcome back. So after all that wildfire talk, let's get back to picking the best places to visit. And with my third pick, I'm going to go with a really unique place, and that is Snow Camp Lookout. This is a lookout that you you can actually rent over on recreation.gov. A really nice one with views all the way out to the ocean, quick access to all types of trails, including Vulcan Lake and the Oregon Redwoods Trail is right on the way out. Uh, my favorite part of the lookout is, is its backstory. So the lookout originally burned down in the Biscuit Fire that we just mentioned, uh, but it was rebuilt by the always awesome Sand Mountain Society, this great nonprofit that builds and maintains fire lookouts across Oregon. And so they put all this work into it. They used like original materials to rebuild it, made it historically accurate. And then it came really close to getting burned down again by the Chetco Bar Fire not that long later. Um, The fire burned literally right to the edge of the lookout, and that's where it stopped. The result, at least last time I visited, which admittedly was a little while ago, was that you could see two very contrasting wildfire scars, one from the Biscuit Fire and one from the Chetco Bar Fire. It probably looks different by now, but last time I was there, you'd walk out on the porch and you'd look on one side of the lookout, and it was like a blackened wasteland, like just like nuked out. And then you'd look on the other, and... You know, it was just the old biscuit uh, scar and it looked really good. You know, there was like new new trees coming up. It was very green. And so like having that dynamic on like each side of the ridge from this lookout uh, was pretty cool. Have you been there uh, recently, Gabe? Like what's your snow camp experience? 2019, 2019, we visited there doing work up on the, the trails around that area into Windy Valley and that, that area. And did could you still see that really significant oh, yeah. like split? Yeah, yep. it was still like that. Yep. All right. So Gabe, why don't you bring us into I think this is our this is your third pick. Okay. So I'm gonna encourage people to go out to the onion camp and hop onto the Calmeopsis Rim Trail and start hiking north. Um on the Calmeopsis Rim Trail eleven twenty four. Go for as long as you want. You can go as far as Mount Billingsley. That's about, uh, I don't know, 15 miles, which is the terminus of the Calmeopsis Rim Trail 1124. But if you're looking for something a little bit you know, more approachable, that Whetstone, Butte, Eagle Mountain, Parasol Peak area is, is just spectacular. And it's similar to that Johnson Butte Trail that I described in that you're you know, basically traversing a ridge that divides the Illinois and the Chetco drainages. And so, you know, out to the east, you can see the Illinois Valley. To the south, you can see the high Siskiyous. So um, Preston Peak, the lieutenants, that whole area. And then looking out west, you just see nothing but mountains um, for as far as you can see. And on a clear day, an exceptionally clear day. If you're up at Whetstone Butte or Eagle Mountain or 
especially Parasol Peak, you can see the surf of the Pacific, which is just um, really cool. And I guess, you know, the reason that I really gravitate towards this experience of walking along the Calmeopsis Rim Trail to these, I'm not going to embellish, you know, their they're not really very distinguished peaks. They don't have a lot of profile, but as you walk along, you know, it, it, it's kind of this walk through history. These trails, this, this trail, this Calmeopsis Rim Trail 1124, this appears in 1917 USGS maps. And with those maps and the anecdotes that you can pick up about the Calmeopsis Leachiana and, and, and John and Lilla Leach and the early Forest Service days and the Civilian Conservation Corps, you really get a sense of being part of that history. And, it, and it's just really remarkable. So uh, there's no people out there. You know, the views are just outstanding. There's these historic elements um, of the, the trail itself and the lookout and you know in parts you can see that, that at some point this was a really well used and developed pack trail it just kind of opens up your imagination in this way where you know it it brings to life those old stories of of john and lilla leach you know going into gold basin which is just west of parasol peak and finding that Leachiana for the first time and those old stories about the mines at gold basin and those, you know, those early pioneers going in there and trying to scratch a living from, um, you know, the, the gold that they could find. And so, you know, I just really encourage people, if you're going to go hike this area, do a little research first, get onto Google, read the botanist and her mule skinner, which is a, you know, a, a collection of letters and stories about John and Lilla Leach, who were really the first, some of the first European, you know, white people who went out here and wrote stuff down and, and, and follow that journey. And I, I, I think the re, you know, you can do that anywhere. You know, you can, you can, you can tap into the history and, and, and tap into the profile of any place that you go. But I think what's so, what's so special about hiking the Calmeopsis rim is that if you kind of, if you look at the descriptions of those early forest service uh, rangers who were out there, you know, discovering the area, just, just as the forest service was first chartered by Congress and you look at the leech narratives, they're going to be very similar to your own. And mm -hmm. so it, 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 it kind of feels a little bit like, you know, you're also discovering something special. It, it, it just really connects you with those narratives in a way that you have a hard time finding anymore. And um, just for like the recreation, Pearsall Peak is that that's the highest point in the Calamiopsis, do I do I have that right? And there's a, there's an old lookout tower up there. Yeah, yeah, no, you're correct about that. There is an old lookout tower there. Depending on what's going on that season with the Forest Service and their workforce and everything, sometimes it's opened, sometimes it's not. You can't rent it. You know, you can't get onto Recreation Gov and rent it. You have to hike to it. But a really special cupola style lookout 
just out in the you know it's in the middle of nowhere it, it, yeah it, it really is so it's something special yeah and that, that I've, I've always felt like that's really a that's a that's a classic route in in southern oregon is is making it out to that peak all right well i'm going to jump into my fourth pick here and it's going to be a little bit different and it's going to include a few different places so on our hike of the illinois river trail uh the drive that took you you know, outside Selma along Illinois River Road is a, a really cool place in and of itself. Like it'll ultimately bring you to the Illinois River Trail, but you can stop at a lot of good spots on the way. And there's places to camp. Uh, there's places to hike and explore and even take some classes if you want to. So I guess we could call it the Illinois Recreation Area, which might be the official name. Um but it includes a bunch of stuff. And the first place I'd flag is the Siskiyou Field Institute, which is a place people can come and stay in um, and take a bunch of environmentally based classes. They have yurts and cabins that you can rent for the nights and explore kind of a cool little area. So it's sort of a fun little educational outpost where there's some good classes. I spent a lot of time there when I lived down there. Uh, a little further down the road, things get kind of steep, but there's a handful of trails that lead down to the beaches of the Illinois River, some nice spots. There's uh, Kirby Flats, Snailback Beach, uh, Horn Bend, and those are all pretty quick and fun hikes you'd take just off the road. There's a few small uh, rustic campsites along the way. Uh, Store Gulch is a pretty well-known one, and it has an amazing swimming hole out there. But a word of caution, this area gets uh, pretty rowdy on peak summer days, and there's been an alcohol ban out there in the area, which is They've been trying to clean it up, but, you know, it's a little bit the Wild West is the Illinois Valley, and uh, I love it. Uh, if you keep going down the road there, there's Michaela Branch Boy Scout Camp, uh, a suspension bridge that apparently is not at all safe these days, uh, some more good swimming holes. So there's a lot going on in that area. Gabe, what do you think about this area? What did I miss? Uh, what do you do when you're out there? Uh, well, I, I heed to your advice. As far as avoiding busy summer weekends on the Illinois River Corridor, I mean, I, I unfortunately, you know, I mean, when I started visiting this area in the in the mid aughts, you know, two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, it was rowdy, you know, but but it was safe, and unfortunately, you know, I I, I can't say that about it anymore. I think that you know the safety issues that have have been mounting over the last few years, you know, especially for families, if you want to go out there with, with children and, and that sort of thing, um, avoid it during the summer months because, you know, there's lots of, there's a lot of crime, um, yeah. which is, it, it's just, you know, another illustration of, you know, what's, what's happening to our, our public lands in Southwest Oregon. We're losing a presence of, of the agency due to budget cuts and, and, you know, higher up policies that happen in Washington and Portland and that sort of place. Um, and, and we're losing access, not because the road isn't open or the trail is closed, but because, you know, you, you don't want to take your kids to somewhere where there's, there's frequent gunfire and, and break-ins to cars and that sort of thing. So, you know, starting with that kind of downside of it, Hey, if you want to go visit this place in the winter or the fall or the early spring, mm -hmm. there is not a better place that I can think of 
to go experience a, a, a wild river corridor. It is amazing. I was just down there this last week and, um, during these cool months, there's nothing going on. And, um, there's all those hikes that you mentioned as well as a few others. There's great camping. Uh, you can keep going down that road like you did in your Honda Civic and hop onto the Illinois River Trail if you want. But, you know, this area has, has so much to offer the, the car camper. And it's unfortunate the way things have gone that, you know, I, I can't really encourage people to go there anytime between, you know, Memorial Day and Labor Day, I, I, I think. But outside of that time, I mean... It, it, it really is this oyster of opportunity still has winter steelhead that you can fish during a, a permitted season. I, I, I love it down there and I go down yeah. there frequently in the winter and, and, um, just have a hell of a time. All right. Well, Gabe coming into your, uh, let's see, fourth pick here. I'm, I'm excited about this one. So, so, so what do you got for us? So we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to go back to 2010 when we started opening up that that route that goes from Babyfoot Lake to Vulcan Lake. So this route coming from the east side of Babyfoot Lake, you know, it ascends the the Calmeopsis Rim, and then it kind of takes this back door along the Bailey Mountain Trail into the Upper Chetco river and this is where you see that that magic canyon that that people call it you know this this corridor that is just completely boxed in by cliffs and and you, you know this this sharp canyon where i mean it's it's just remarkable scenery and the route follows the chetco river for about 10 miles 8 8, eight miles before heading up towards Johnson Butte. And then remember I was talking about the Johnson Butte trail. You take that all the way to Vulcan Lake. And so that route that I just described, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of Northern horseshoe shaped route, um, that we, that we identified early on and opened up that took us five years to open up. We start, you know, we started working in 2010 and, and we, op- we, we'd open up a section and we'd come back the next year and it would be filled back in. And so it was a lot of this, this just constant catch up game. And finally in 2014, you know, we broke through, we broke through and we had a celebratory hike and then we were kind of like, well, what, what's, what's next, you know, what's, What's the next opportunity here? And we did the same thing where we started looking at trails and we said, well, that Calmeopsis Rim Trail, it, it, it keeps going and it connects to the Chetco Divide Trail 1210. And if we work on that for a summer, you know, you're not going to be going from one side of the wilderness to the other. You're going to do a loop. You're going to have a 50 mile loop. And, you know, we were just full of piss and vinegar and, and just you know, super motivated and, and young and stupid. And, you know, we're checking all those boxes. And so without even seeing the, those sections between like on the Calmeopsis rim trail from uh, Canyon peak to Doe gap without even, we, we just said, we're going to get this done. We're going to go open that up. And the next year in 2015, you know, we, we dispatched 
our, our crews um, to go open that up and they, and they just nailed it. They just knocked it dead. And the, and the work was actually a lot easier than it was on the Northern section of the route. And then we said, well, what are we going to call this thing? What, you know, what's the name of this loop? You have to, you have to stamp these, these routes with a name. You have to give them narrative. You have to give them story. You have to give them, you know, something that connects with people other than, oh, you take the trail to 1124 for four miles and then you cut off on the trail, you know, all these numbers and everything, they don't mean anything. And so, you know, we're always looking for these narratives. And we said, well, who, who should we commemorate? And, and we thought of Lilla Leach, feminist botanist who, who went into the Calmeopsis and, and, and really did give it a story. And so we named it the, the Lilla Leach Memorial Loop. You can find it on our website, you know, if you want better descriptions of it. And it is basically, you know, all the good stuff about the Calmeopsis. It's about the Chetco River. It's about the high ridges. It's about that geology that you were describing at Vulcan Lake. It's about this hellacious, unforgiving, relentless elevation profile that you know something like 20,000 feet of 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 elevation relief on that 50 mile loop okay so it's up and down and up and down um and it's for a more intrepid type of you know user that's looking for a real challenge to do the whole loop but that's a stalwart of the calmiopsis that route is never going to go away yeah and the last thing here is uh, I need you to describe the the Chetco, the upper Chetco yeah. for people who've never been there. I mean, <laughs> describe it a little bit. Well, I mean, I'll just speak to my own experience. If you're in your mid 20s and courting someone who you want to marry, this is the place that you want to bring them. It's just it, it's it's a very romantic, beautiful place. It stands out. It's it's enveloped by backcountry. So, you know, you're just you're in the middle of of, of you know excuse my french but you're in the middle of fucking nowhere and this river is just it's enchanting it's 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 so clear that you can't really see it you know that's why you get this effect when you take pictures of people in boats on the top of it it looks like they're floating on air because the turbidity is so low that you can see 20 30 feet down to the bottom it's Oregon's largest undammed waterway. It, 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 it just has this magic quality that I, I, I haven't found anywhere else. Um, even on, you know, California's Smith River or some of the other coastal rivers in Oregon. There's just so many things that contribute to it. It's, it's the water quality. So it is, it's enveloped by, by wilderness. There's no development. And so, you know, you don't have the runoff and the soils, running into it to make it, it dirty. Um, it's the geology, you know, between the peridotite and the granite and everything um, to the deep pools and the shallow riffles. And I, I guess it really encompasses, in my opinion, the idea of a wild river. It, 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 yeah. it is the most wild river. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of the, the guys who go down there with boats and floated, I mean, they've, they've definitely described it as, you know, one of the wildest, if not the wildest river experience, like in the entire West Coast, which I mean, that's that's saying something when you have stuff like the the middle uh, salmon and stuff like that. But they're just like if you for a rugged, wild experience, you can't really beat the upper chest. I, I, I think they're right. You can't fly into it. There's no inholding like there is in Idaho, you know, to fly in. You got to hike in. 
it, it's it's just something else. Yeah. All right. Well, it's gonna be top to. It's going to be tough to top that, and, you know, I'm obviously not going to try. But with my uh, fifth pick here as we we round the bend in the picks of uh, the Calmeopsis area, I'm just going with a fun little local secret. It's a fun little easy day hike um, on the coast side of the wilderness, and that is a little place called Windy Valley. Uh, it includes a, a fun hike past a bunch of uh, rare wildflowers uh, to a hidden little kind of grassy meadow. Uh, so you actually start at the Snow Camp Trailhead, and the trail is pretty cool. Uh, travels past fens of Darlingtonia. There's a giant rock, as I recall. You can climb up and get a view of the ocean. Uh, eventually, you reach a junction, and uh, you can go up and uh, go up to Snow Camp Lookout, um, I believe. But if you go straight, you go into this wonderful little grassy valley that's uh, called Windy Valley. Not a long trek overall and uh, worthwhile, especially if you're staying in Brookings or visiting the Oregon Redwoods. It's a fun one to just come on out and, and check out. Uh, Gabe, how does it look post-wildfire? I haven't been there since the, the Chetco Bar Fire roared through. So what, what, what does the little Windy Valley uh, look like now? It's beautiful. It's, it's just how you described it was spared by Chetco Bar and Klondike Fires. Um, it's this little diamond in the rough. All right, so Gabe, you are coming around to your last pick here. So where is the last place that you are going to highlight for us here? Yeah, I'm going to send your, I'm going to send your listeners on a goose chase, and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to say that you know, take out those quads as you as you're listening to this. They're available for free online, by the way. You know, you can get them at store.usgs.gov, and so you could, you could pull these PDFs up in high resolution as you're listening but you know from babyfoot lake you're going to head south and instead of going over to the bailey cabin and uh and bailey mountain area and down to the upper chetco you're gonna you're gonna stay on the old emily cabin trail and you're gonna go down to the little chetco river and you're going to see the real impacts of wildfires that that kind of stacked up on top of each other. You're going to see the impacts of the Chetco Bar Fire that reburned areas of the Biscuit Fire, and you're going to get a real sense for that ecological change. But you're going to drop into the Little Chetco River near Emily Cabin, um, and an inholding that's owned by the Wilderness Lands Trust, who acquired it from a, a private private owner. In 2018 and it's this oasis it's this beautiful 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 country in the middle of all this this fire um impact and if you have a real if you have a real inkling for wild places and you want in and you want to see the middle of nowhere you're going to hike to madstone site and this is where two brothers the uncles of of the old journalist Paul Fadig, who wrote for the Daily Courier and the Mail Tribune for years and years, they hid out there during World War One. They were pacifists who dodged the draft, and and they they made their cabin up there a Madstone site, which is you know that's what you'll see on the map. And we we cut the trail a year ago. I would I would have told you don't even bother. But we opened up this trail this last year, and we're pretty averse to dead-end trails because that's what this is. You know, if you go to Madstone site, it's a dead end. You end there, and then you hike back the way that you came. But it, it, it's just this spot 
that is so remote, even more remote than, you know, it's as high up on the Chetco River as you can get on a trail. And it has that that Vulcan Lake kind of garb on, you know, it's got that peridotite, that red orangish bedrock that you described earlier. And it's it's this there's a pool on the river there that's just outstanding. You know, we decide to do that. You're gonna walk out of there. And you're going to hike the little Chetco Trail 1121 up to Canyon Peak where there's an old lookout site. The lookout's been burned for a long time, but there's some junky little things there, you know, old plates and old remnants of the lookout. And you're going to have this this tremendous view similar to what you would have at Parasol Peak or one of the other high summits in the western Siskiyou. And you're going to hike that Calmeopsis Rim Trail back to Babyfoot Lake. And... You know, I, I guess the reason I point people toward here is I, I, I've i never done the math on it. I've never, you know, ran this through my GIS staff experts, but I would wager the Madstone site and the Little Chetco. I, I don't think there's too many places in Western Oregon that are further from a road. I, I think mm. it just happens to be one of the the most remote places on the West coast that you can hike a a trail to. All right. Well, we have covered a lot of ground and we've, we've gotten through all of our picks. I did want to want to quiz you just a few on a few other places before I, before I let you go Uh, back in the day when I was writing a a book about hiking uh, Southern Oregon, and you can still find that in print in a few places. Um, I tried to climb up um, Miss Lanthia Trail and into the Big Craggies area and got ab- I got so destroyed by down trees and brambles and everything. Is that still impossible? To, is that dream of reaching the, the Craggies still a dream that uh, is going to have to remain a dream? Yeah, the Miss. I'm going to correct you. It's Miss. Okay. It's it's Miss Latna. Miss Latna. Okay. M I S L A T N I A. Miss Latina Peak, yeah, that 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 old trail we have not worked on it. It's not on our radar to work on in the next few years. It's a pipe dream um, <laughs> for anyone who you know is is reasonable. I mean, I fought through it for a really long time, and it's it's I like I didn't turn around lightly, and it was just like all right. I'm like every bo- part of my body was scratched up by that point, so I was like all right, just have to do it yeah no you're i mean you're you're somewhat reasonable <laughs> um all right other ones i wanted to to mention just as kind of like a, an honorable mention section yeah uh, are the eight dollar mountain area yeah. and the, the boardwalks yeah. and stuff. so what, what are what are some quick hits there that are right off of redwood highway 190 well yeah if, if you only have a few minutes to spare and, you, and you're driving from grants pass down to the redwoods or you know, Grants Pass over to Brookings or somewhere. These are great shots. They're a couple miles off the $8 Mountain Road. And that Boardwalk Trail and the the Little Falls tra- Trail, those Darlingtonia fens in there. And, uh, you know, I, we didn't talk about the Darlingtonia, but it's this, it's this pitcher plant that, you know, it looks, it looks kind of like the head of a cobra. And it's, you know, colloquially known as the cobra lily. Um, those fens are just outstanding there and, and and you really can't find a better example of those. And those are, you know, I, I take my grandpa there and I'd, I'd take my eight year old there as well. And I would have taken my eight year old when, when they were five. Um, cause they just, they're, they're easy trails and they, they highlight 
that botany that, you know, brings so many people and so much interest to this area. Gotcha. All right. Well, that was a lot. Once again, I've been joined by Gabe Howe, the executive director of the Siskiyou Mountain Club. A uh, great place to send your college student during the during the summer to learn some real lessons and get their, their butt kicked into shape by Gabe. Gabe, thanks again for taking all this time, sharing all this knowledge uh, about what is, you know, really one of Oregon's special places. Thank you, Zach. It was, it was a real pleasure and I had a lot of fun doing it. All right, well, that's all the time we have left on today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of what is now almost 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. We mentioned earlier that they're recruiting for trail ambassadors, but if you want to plan a trip to that area and get on the trail or get on the water, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike and swim and camp. And you can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's Tillamook Coast, all one word, dot com slash recreation hyphen map. And finally, thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.